0: Welcome to Pine Ridge House, where the Bible is our standard for all faith and practice. Today in our sermon podcast, Dan Jansen explores the biblical book of Revelation and how it speaks into our lives. If you wanted a description of Rome, its wealth, its center of power, the center of goods being traded, look no further than Revelation chapter 18. But there are other reasons to understand Babylon as referring to Rome in John's day. Some of you will remember back to Peter. He also referred to this place called Babylon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 says this, She who is Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings. Sends you greetings. Peter here is referring to a church in a place called Babylon that is sending greetings. And yet by the first century, the ancient city of Babylon was obscure and very small. Peter never visited there and there was no church there. So what place was Peter referring to? Again, most likely he's referring to the church at Rome. Like John, Peter is using Babylon for its likeness to Rome, who at the time was the center of worldly power and opposition to God's people. We've been speaking about this for weeks. Furthermore, in Revelation chapter 17, just the chapter back, Revelation 17 and verse 9, it describes Babylon as sitting on seven hills, and it asks those who are wisdom to consider this. In other words, it's beckoning us to figure out who this is, the city on seven hills. And of course, Rome was known to be a city on seven hills. And in fact, there was a bronze uh, coin apparently in circulation uh, that depicted Rome sitting on seven hills. In addition, as we go through the text here in Revelation 18, Babylon is described as being the center of trade. The center of trade from around the world, just like Rome was. And as a part of this trade that was going on in Revelation 18, verse 13 describes chariots as being traded. Now it is quite unlikely that today chariots are going to be traded for merchant ships. It's quite unlikely this is going to happen also in the future. Furthermore, other historical so- sources we find of Rome's fall. It was great, and it's predicted here. It's predicted that her fall is going to be great. And population estimates put, puts Rome back in John's day at around a million people. This was an astounding feat. A city of a million people back in the first century. In fact, it would not be matched until 1,700 years later in London, a city of that size. And yet its fall was indeed great. Historical sources tell us it went from a million people down to 30,000. That's a drop of 97%. Its fall was indeed great. Now, although John doesn't specifically say that Babylon is Rome here, all indicators are suggesting that this is the case. But enough of the preliminaries. Let's get right to the text verses 1 and 2. We find here that Babylon is listed as a global center of evil. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was illumined with its glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Babylon was a center of evil. It's called Babylon the Great in chapter 16 all the way through to 18, but not because it was great in holy character. The city was a center of evil with every unclean spirit listed there. She is also listed as being Babylon the Great because it was a center for wealth and trade. Verse 3, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. It was the center of trade. And the center of trade is further described down in verses 11 to 13. Look down there with me. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. cargoes of gold and silver, precious stone and pearls and fine linen, and purple and silk and scarlet, and every kind of citrus wood, every article of ivory, every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, and cinnamon and spice and, and incense and perfume and frankincense, and wine, and olive oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and cattle, and sheep, and cargoes of horses, and chariots, and slaves, and human lives. It was a center for trade. Rome was a world power, and its wealth was obtained through their conquest, through plunder, and through the taxation of the provinces, but it became very wealthy, and with that wealth it um, experienced a very lavish lifestyle in Rome, and her luxurious living was brought to her from all over the world. Sources tell us where some of these, uh, play, uh, some of these uh, in this list have come from. Gold and silver, apparently from Spain, precious stone, India, pearls from the Persian Gulf, silk from China, citrus wood ivory, Africa, bronze from Corinth and Spain, marble from Egypt and Greece cinnamon from South Asia, wine import- imported from Sicily, chariots from modern-day France, and of course, the slave trade from Asia Minor. And so these merchant ships would line up in the harbor of Rome, ready to sell their merchandise. And as verse 15 puts it, they all became rich off of her. But in predicting the fall of Babylon, it speaks of, uh, it speaks of Babylon as if it's already fallen. And so the merchant ships of verse 11 are already in a complaint mode, saying nobody buys our cargo anymore. Rome is not buying our cargo anymore. Their economic security was now gone. G.K. Beale, in his commentary, he puts it this way, quote, Economic security would be removed from Babylon's subjects if they did not cooperate with her idolatry. That idolatry coercing the nations to trust in her economic resources as she herself does, End quote. Now such security for these nations to pay as a temptation was, was not easy to resist. And so the nations are said here to have drunk the wine of her passion and of her immorality. you want us to cave to your sinful ways of Rome? No problem. We want to become rich off you. Babylon was luring all greedy culprits to come to her with their their own sinful ways, you must comply. And the wealthy merchants had no problem with this at all. But as high and as mighty as Rome was, she was full of sin and she was going to be judged. And the Christians therefore needed to come out of her. Specifically in verse 4, our key verse for this morning, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. The sins of Rome, the Babylon of John's day, they were very clear. It was materialism, it was greed, idolatry, self glorification, immorality, and self indulgence, just to name a few. And the text here tells us that it was um, their sins were rampant, rampant in the city. Um, Verse 5 describes it uh, as, All the nations have drunk of the wine of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, the merchants of the earth. I heard another voice saying, Come out of her, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Rome was not only a center for evil, Uh, where evil uh, spirits could come. It was not only a center where there would be a merchant trade. It was a center for all kinds of sin. And her sin was piled up even to heaven. And so these churches in eastern Turkey, as they're reading through this, here's the exhortation. You come out of her. Do not join her in any way. It is a place that overflows with sin. And overflowing with sin is a minor statement for what was really going on there. And so John describes her as being a harlot and dangerous to associate with. Christians were told, you come out of her. Not so much geographically, but an inner orientation toward her sin. They were warned that Babylon's doom was coming. And that doom would become theirs if they joined in with her. You'll remember, as we went through the earlier chapters of Revelation 2 and 3, Laodicea had already fallen prey to this. They describe themselves as being wealthy, and John says, you're not wealthy, you're poor. And of course, other Revelation churches as well were getting sucked into the secular context in which they were living. Now, whether you believe Babylon is Rome or not, that's up for you to decide. But the warning message here is clear to Christians. Do not unite with the secular system of the world. And by secular, it's not a derogatory term. Secular is just life without God's input. That's all we're talking about. Life without God's input. And the secular system surrounding the churches here are luring the Christians to come and to join in with her. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2 it says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Don't follow them. The crowd is strong and the pressure is strong. There's a song that... Um, I heard many years ago, and it's got a great uh, story to it. It's a catchy tune. It's called Caught in the Crowd. It was written by Kate Miller. And it tells the story of this kid who got caught in the crowd. And in that crowd, the crowd is doing one thing toward this individual. This individual is all alone. And normally they were friends. But this individual, in getting caught in the crowd, removed themselves from this friend that they had. It's the pressure of the crowd around you. It's the pressure of the context around you. And in John chapter 15, he said, Jesus says this, you're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be hated by this secular world because you don't belong to it. You don't belong to this world. But make no mistake about it, the world wants you to come join her. The secular system around you wants to pull you in. This is, of course, the world in which we live in. And I think sometimes when we, when we when you get these verses like Romans 12, where it says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, we think it's something that's just out there. We don't think it's Canada. We don't think it's Alberta. We don't think it's Calgary. We think it's something that's just out there. But let me remind you, Canada and Alberta and Calgary do not take their cues from God. They do not. They are secular. They operate without care or concern for what God would say. Now, that doesn't always mean that they're going to operate in contradiction to God. Sometimes they do. But here's the point. In being secular, they don't care what God says. And if we're dulled into thinking that our place of residence is actually somehow godly, we'll be lured into her sins. You put your guards down and you become seduced by them. We've got a good idea of what was going on in Rome here, and John tells us, specifically in chapters 2 and 3, some of the sins that they were getting caught up in. But what about our context? What would John say to our context? Do we also need to heed the words of John saying, you need to come out of her, and don't participate in her sins? And I would suggest to you that the answer, at least in some degree, is yes. As John would exegete his context through the inspiration of the Spirit, so did Paul. And he spoke specifically to churches, and he spoke to them about the danger of sin around them. This morning, I would like to do the same. It comes as no surprise to you when I say that sexual sin is creeping into the church. Within these past two weeks, I've been at two separate meetings with Free Methodists, and attending one of the meetings, I found that a free Methodist minister was completely okay and fined with a homosexual lifestyle. And of course, the practice of homosexuality in the Bible is forbidden. This does not mean that we welcome them, and we welcome people of all sorts and sizes of sin. I was welcomed into God's kingdom, and so were you. And so we welcome all those of all shapes and all sizes. But in terms of the practice of homosexuality, it's very clear in the Scriptures Now, I'm not sure where this is going to take our denomination because we're coming to a crossroads. I don't know what's going to happen. But I would ask this question, why are we dealing with it now? Why not 50 years ago? Why are we dealing with it now? I would suggest to you because this is exactly where our secular culture is heading. And from all the people that I've spoken with in the Christian community about why they have shifted more towards this arena, it's not because they were reading the scriptures and found out from the scriptures something that they had not seen before. It's because of their own circumstance. It's because of maybe family members or people or friendships. And therefore, they're starting to think it through and starting to rethink it. Now, I was encouraged this last week. I, had, I was a part of a meeting of, uh, of 20 um, other pastors in our denomination who were concerned. They're concerned about where our denomination is heading. I was very encouraged by that meeting. It was a meeting that uh, was all about peace. The, the bishop knew we are having the meeting. It was perfectly fine. But we, were just, we just have the concern of where the direction of our denomination may be heading. We don't know where it's going. And as we spoke there, we were all about peace. We were prayed together. And um, again, the, the notion of accepting everybody uh, into our churches is, is clearly there. But a strong conviction from God's word and not compromising in this area of, of uh, sexual sin. And so John would say to us, as he says to this church here, we, we are not to participate in the sins that are surrounding us. Or how about another area? Another area in our world is what is success? What does success look like in our world? And has success crept into our churches? I was watching, uh, years ago now, Dragon's Den, and some of you still watch it. I don't know if you watch it, but it's these entrepreneurs, and I'm I'm all into these entrepreneurs. they got these crazy ideas, and they they pitch it towards these investors, these investors that are called dragons. These dragons now have to decide, based on the pitch, whether or not they'll participate or invest in this particular entrepreneurial idea. I was intrigued by one years ago uh, where the pitch was made uh, by a guy who uh, had something called a cheater's app. A cheater's app. And how this uh, app would go is that uh, on your phone, if uh, you are committed to a, a girl or a guy, and yet you're also committed to some others on the side, no worries, uh, this cheaters app would encrypt it so that nobody could ever see it. Everybody, anybody ever picked up your phone, even if they had the passcode, your cheaters app would make it clear that nobody would able, be able to see it. So he's pitching this to the dragons. And one of the dragons said, uh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I would not be able to look my daughter in her in her, in her face and say, "Hey, look, I'm a part of endorsing this. I, I can't do it." And Kevin O'Leary, who many of you know, who uh, there was rumors he may even run for prime minister a few years back, but Kevin O'Leary, he was one of the dragons, and he looked at this other dragon. He said, "This is about money. Whatever you're talking about, this is about money. This is about gaining wealth. It's a compromise." But that's what success sometimes is. There's other means of success, of course, in our society. Success in terms of education. Success in terms of status or accomplishment. These have been around for decades. And am I suggesting to you that we're more in trouble now than we were years ago? I would suggest no. But there is one area of secular life that has been gaining ground in the church. The growing disdain for children. The growing disdain for children. They get in the way of success. Anybody ever heard a secular person these days describe success as having children recently? And yet the Bible says children are a blessing from God. They make our lives better. We're to be fruitful and we are to multiply. And yet according to the research done by PathGhost.com, Christians are being influenced by the secular world in this department. In 1972, the fertility rate among evangelicals was 2.7. Now it's 2.3, virtually the same as secularists. The secular world is gaining ground in God's way, and the devaluation of children and replacing it with monetary priorities or possession or status is gaining ground. How about another area, a more contemporary one, community? The COVID-19 pandemic has been ripping through the world for the past two and a half years. It's a sickness that has affected the entire world. But COVID quickly became a breeding ground for sin. What am I talking about? The sin of slander and bitterness and self-righteous attitudes and open disdain for others and gossip. They were all key culprits of what was going on. They are all sins of exclusion. These particular sins were the most rampant I have ever seen in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Relationships were tossed to the curb like I've never seen before. Long-term friendships and family relationships were destroyed everywhere in our secular society. And if you're here today and you say, I don't know what you're talking about, your head's been in the sand. Did these kinds of sins creep into the church? I'll let you decide. See, having different viewpoints is not a problem. Or maybe even having more informed viewpoints than those around you, that's also not a problem. It's the sins of exclusion that are. This notion of us against them is not to be accepted within the church. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says this, If one member suffers, we all suffer. And if one member is honored, we're all honored with them. Why? Because we're united as a family. Now, I don't know where our secular culture is going to go next. I don't know what the next big subject is that's going to divide secular culture. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be climate change. Maybe it's going to be free speech. I don't know. But in the church, we leave room for other people's opinions, and we leave room for other viewpoints. We do not become uh, divided because of it. Inflammatory language and language of absolutes are not good. They do not cause unity in the church, and they are not welcome here. I wonder if John were to speak to our church, if he were to say, come out for her. Don't participate in her sins. Or how about leadership? That's another subject. Our secular ways coming into the church. Our secular society is attracted to leaders who are all about self-glory over humility, power over serving and all the sin that comes along with it. But has this affected the church? Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill, Ravi Zacharias, Hill songs, just to name a few. Are we looking to the secular models of superstar leaders, or of those of humble, solid character? The Bible's very clear on the matter. Character is always a priority over charisma. The leadership standards, as we find them all throughout the scriptures, whether we go from Moses or we come to Acts chapter 6 or 1 Timothy 3 and talking about eldership, they're all the same. It's clear. It's all about character, not about superstars. Imagine if I were to ask you, these are just some of the ones that I've been thinking about this last week. But I imagine if I were to ask you, you might say, there's more, Dan. Again, we're not talking merely about sinful problems. Sinful problems have been around for decades, hundreds and hundreds of years. We're talking about influence of the secular society that's creeping into the church. And Revelation 18 is very clear on its warning. The people of God are not to participate in her sins. It is a secular world. It is a life without God who doesn't care what God says. We are told in Revelation to become overcomers and to be a light to a world that is immersed in darkness. And so may it never be said of me that is creeping into my life. And may it never be said of all of us. Amen? Amen. I just have one lesson for us this morning. The pull of secular society on the church, it's real. It is real, and it is very difficult to overcome. But as Christians, we must remain diligent in our commitment to holy character and be a light to a world full of darkness. And when we talk about a world full of darkness, we're talking about a world where they govern their lives with no concern for what God says. The pull of the secular world in the church—it on the church, it's very real. And as, even as I was reflecting this last week, I'd love to say that I was thinking about all of you. I was thinking about me. It's tough stuff and the pull of the secular world is strong. We've got to remain diligent and to be committed to holy character and to be careful. To be careful and be reminded that Calgary is not a Christian city, Alberta is not a Christian province and Canada is not a Christian nation. It's secular. Again, at times they may have uh, standards that line up with ours and I'm grateful for that and God puts people in leadership in places for that reason. But it is not a godly country, it is not a godly province, and it is not a godly city. And if we, if we let down that guard and we think that that's the case and we forget that to not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, we're talking about a world that we live in, a city that we live in. So I'm sure I could have put up another four or five lessons, but I thought this is the one that I wanted to key in on this morning. So why don't we stand and we'll pray and, Lord, we read of these, um, these scriptures and uh, we read of the early churches, um, especially the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Laodicea and Smyrna, and Philadelphia and Ephesus, etc. And they were all struggling, Lord, with the influence of the secular world around them. And it was pulling them in and uh, some of the churches had compromised and you had strong words to say to them. And maybe even here this morning, Lord, there's been areas that we've compromised in. And as I've been speaking this, this, uh, this morning, Lord, may you have been speaking to us in different categories in our lives where we've become more conformed to the pattern of this world. The great thing about you, Jesus, is you gently bring us back. But you convict us and you show us areas. And I pray that we would be the kind of people in this church that as we're thinking about areas of compromise, we wouldn't first be thinking of others. We'd we'd first be thinking about ourselves. Say, Lord, where's the area that Dan Jansen, where have I compromised, Lord? Where's the area that I'm being sucked in? Be strong in your voice to me, Lord, this morning and to the voice of the people here, Lord. Your word is strong in this, and you confronted those churches in Revelation 2 and 3, but you welcomed them back. Paul confronted many churches in, in the New Testament, but the welcome was always there. Even in extreme situations and the kinds of things that were going on with the Israelites, there was a conviction, but there was always a welcome back. And that's the same here, Lord, that we would not be a part of the secular world. We would come out of her and not participate in her sins. And so, Lord, we, we are... Um, convinced that as dale said that your church will will prevail and we are convinced lord that when we get the glory there'll be millions and millions of us all gathered together around your throne may it be the testimony of this church may it be the testimony of the churches around calgary and alberta and canada that we are united under you and that as people would look into this community they would say my how they love one another So, Lord, uh, take this word this morning and I pray that you've already been convicting us and moving us in areas that we need to be moved and places, Lord, that we haven't been listening, Lord. I pray that you'd be strong in your conviction in the days and hours to come. We love you very much. We count it a great privilege that we are a part of your family. And so, Lord, help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information on our church or this recording, please contact us at www.pineridgehouse.com.